Dragi gledatelji i slušatelji podcasta između redaka, dobrodošli u novu epizodu. Ovih sljedećih nekoliko epizoda zaredat će nam se sami autori. Naravno, usred smo Interlibera, jako puno ljudi dolazi u Zagreb, a dolazi i nekoliko stranih autora. Prvo od njih je apsolutni hit na knjiškoj sceni. Objavila je svoj debitanski roman koji je preveden u više od 40 zemalja i to prije nego što je objavljen u njenoj matičnoj Kanadi. Osim toga, već se priča i o snimanju filma u kojem će ona biti producent. A, također radi i u knjiškoj industriji, pa će biti zanimljivo porazgovarati s njom iz te perspektive. Ona je Nita Prose. Uh, hi Nita, welcome to our small studio and to our small Croatia. We're really happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Sonia. I'm thrilled, thrilled to be here. Yeah, so I've heard, I noticed that you're a huge fan of Zagreb. Is this your first time here? It is my first time, but as I keep telling uh, all of you, it is definitely not my last time. I'm afraid that I've been treated so well and experienced so much wonderful hospitality that you're now stuck with me because I'm coming back. <laughs> Uh, I, I said a similar a similar thing to Lainey Taylor, also a foreign author. Uh, she visited Opatia for um, Comic-Con we have there, and then Zagreb, and I told her, well, you have to come uh, during the summer as well, because, uh, yeah, yes. th- th- this is what we are most famous for. So It is. So I, I feel like I've, I've seen a different uh, view of the country, but I look forward to the summer as well. <laughs> uh, I know that you visited Dubai before Zagreb, and yes. what's your next station? And is your itinerary crazy busy? It has been a very busy year for me. Uh, after this, I go to Serbia, so I'll be in Belgrade for a bit. Then I go home, and then I go to Iceland. Oh, yeah. how come? Uh, couldn't you like connect those couple of points or spots? It was probably spots? a good idea, but the way things happened and the timing didn't quite work. So, you know, in the end, I have a few days at home, which is good. I can catch up with some writing I need to do. <laughs> and uh, then I'll go to Iceland to a, a noir festival. There. Oh, wow, yeah. great. Yeah. Are you yeah. excited? I'm super excited. Yeah. Is this your actually the first time in Europe or have you been to Europe? Uh, no, before? I have been, but I've never been to Iceland before, just as I had never been to Croatia. So, oh, so um, many new things. So this many year. new things, yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I think, don't know about you that you were in the book industry long before The Maid came out. So That's what right. were you doing? So I am still uh, the vice president of Simon Schuster Canada, which of course is a very big publishing house, <laughs> um, and I'm an editorial director. So I have worked with authors for the last 20-something years, a job that I absolutely love. And you know, I always say that I credit my authors with teaching me everything that I needed to know in order to write this, my debut novel. Oh, that's really, really nice. And when did you start loving books? Because I think that I read somewhere that you started reading when you were three and a half, something like that. Are you a genius? (laughs) No, I am not a genius. I do recall, but I do recall, and I think some book people that I've met, true, really radical book people, you know, us. (laughs) Yeah. really do remember the first moment that they read. I know I don't know if I was three and a half. I think I was more like four or something. Um, but I do remember, you know, that feeling of opening a book and seeing the language, the words, the letters sort of organize themselves into something I could recognize, that I could read for the very first time. And I remember running to the kitchen where my parents were and interrupting their conversation and saying, oh, i can read! <laughs> and they both look at each other like, yeah, yeah, that's right. very nice, um, <laughs> that's great. Uh, but that was a momentous moment for me, and so I think somehow in my DNA, I've always been a reader. 
uh, I have to like jump. Uh, I, I had a structure of questions in my head, but now I have to jump to, to my last question <laughs> because I'm really curious about your last name and was it some kind of um, a premonition for your career in general with books? <laughs> okay, so here is the real and true story of my last name. So my real last name is Pronovo. It's a French-Canadian last oh, name. Oh, okay. Um, and my last name that I use as a writer, my pen name, is Prose. Oh, so that's your pen name. Okay, it I didn't is. know that. And the reason why I called myself that is because I was used to it. Because in my work, um, you know, my team always will say, you know, hey, Prose, oh. as a short form for my last name, <laughs> can you edit this copy for me? Hey, Prose, have you read that new acquisition yet? Hey, Prose, did you read the second volume of such and such? Um, and that was my nickname at work and continues to be my nickname. So it felt like a very natural transition for me. And when I joined Twitter, I became pros, new <laughs> pros. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a really great story and a really great pen name. Uh, how did your career in the publishing industry started? Because uh, I, I don't know about Canada, but I know for Croatia that it's a really closed industry and a lot of people are switching from one publishing house to another. Yes. So it's really hard to enter. How did you do it? The way in um, that industry in North America is through internships. So obviously you go to school and you do study and um, there are book publishing programs, certainly. Oh, great. Um, we're just, I'm sorry, we were talking about it in the last episode. We actually don't have anything similar. In I've heard that. Yeah. I've been talking to people about that. So we do, um, although you don't exclusively need to attend those, you know, English literature is also an important step. <laughs> Uh, but then after that, there are internships that you can take on in some of the bigger houses. And that is really the way in. And when I began, you know, I began as a lowly intern. And part of my job was to connect with the editors and take their manuscripts. Now, remember, I'm old enough that, um, you know, a lot of editing was done on paper, not, you know. Yeah. But it's a really romantic. It was so romantic. <laughs> and I was so excited, Sonia, because I would have access to these manuscripts by amazing authors, some of them, you know, very, very big names in Canada and abroad, with the marginalia notes between the editor and the author, and all of this sidebar conversation. And so I, my job is to photocopy these things? Well, let me tell you. I couldn't you just you didn't I, I was <laughs> reading, and at the same time, I was learning how a book is made, how, how a writer creates something as, you know, a solo creator, and then the editor sharpens it, focuses it, builds it, um, you know, heightens the narrative and the character uh, characters in such fundamental ways. And I felt like a spy in that conversation that happened on the page, and I fell in love with publishing. Yeah, it's it's a most peculiar thing because a lot of people who enter the industry don't really come out of the industry. They're switching jobs, etc. But when you start working with books, I think that that's your job for the rest of your life. I think so. Those of us who really have that um, desire, certainly yeah. we when when we find our place in that industry, it is very very hard push, to for push us, us out. To, to leave. <laughs> Uh, what's uh, for me the most interesting about you is the fact that you worked for three out of the big five publishing houses uh, and I don't know how uh, many of our viewers or listeners know but the big five is like the representative of the book industry in the world they own like 90% of the market something like that and those are um, Simon and Schuster Macmillan Penguin Random House and please Harper call me. Collins okay and yeah. we're missing one um, Hachette Hachette is, is also a fairly big one yes yeah. yeah okay yeah and you were working for 
I have worked, I'm currently working for Simon & Schuster, I've worked for Penguin Random House, and I've worked for HarperCollins. So. Uh, can you specify like the most interesting parts of your jobs at the, your various companies? I would say the, the part of the job that uh, always intrigues me and keeps me going the most is the intimate work with the authors. Hmm. It really is about um, working with somebody who has a vision and an idea, most often because I work more with novels than with nonfiction. And our job together is to create a goal and to see that project through fruition so that it can be the best it can possibly be and reach the audience that it's intended to reach. And that to me is, um, it, it's, it's a beautiful endeavor. I love working in uh, fiction, which is supposed to be the realm of non-fact <laughs> and finding a truth to that that can sometimes have more dignity and more reality than what we call the real world. And that's why stories are so important, because they teach us something um, that we, we uh, associate with a fictional world that can be so very true and meaningful, even though it's, it it's is fiction. a work of creation. Yeah. It doesn't even exist except in the mind of the writer and the other people who work on that book. I think that's the main reason why books didn't um like disappear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when the digital age came and Kindles and uh, digital book readers as well. I agree. And you know, um, many people have predicted the demise of the yeah. book. Oh, well, the book industry is dying. Well, oh, books are not going to be read anymore. There are no readers. And this doom and gloom and pessimism has existed for as long as the written word <laughs> has existed. And yet, we're, We're not working. dead yet. Yeah. <laughs> Books are still there. Books are still being published. Writers are still writing. And more importantly, readers are still reading. It's a very simple and beautiful technology, the book. And it still works today. Uh, I don't know about your experiences, but I think that the pandemic actually, uh, like all the minuses of the pandemic are, there are also pluses. And one of the big pluses were that I think that people started reading more because there were annoyed with the television and all the TV shows and everything and they just came back to books. I think that's absolutely true and certainly the numbers bear it out in North America. Yeah. Um, we needed that a moment of, uh, you know, really immersing ourselves in an escapist world, whatever that was. And so there was this wonderful return to books and now our job as people in publishing uh, is to keep those readers. Yeah, to manage the hype. Yeah. yeah, to make sure that those readers stay with us and continue to read. And I think even before COVID, there was something happening with streaming with Netflix and some of the other streamers that was very valuable for our industries. Um, you know, what we saw and what we have seen over the past 15 years or so is a return to the serialized storytelling mm -hmm. genre. So all of those really great series that we are binge watching on those streamers, they are really in, in many ways visualized novels. They happen serially, chapter by chapter, episode by episode. And that long form storytelling, I think, has helped um, viewers come back to the book and realize that, uh, you know, that, that, that longer story, the evolution of character over a longer period of time is something that can be very attractive and, um, you know, suspenseful and entertaining. And I think the streamers have actually helped 
us come back to the book in many ways. You know, we can binge a book <laughs> just the way we binge episodes of a Netflix series. Yeah, of course. And also it helped that a lot of uh, TV shows that we really love are actually book adaptations. That's some right. Some are more famous, some are less famous. That's but right. yeah, a lot of them are. And uh, that transference back and forth, you know, maybe hardcore readers like us, we start with a book and then yeah. we move on to the series. But it, it also creates readers. Yeah, of course. It creates readers because they watch first and then they read after. Yeah. Uh, what I find interesting, and I don't know if maybe you have like numbers or statistics that you can share with us, is um, how much of manuscripts publishers receive and how much of them are actually published. So do you know? Uh, for, you for know, your we don't we don't generally keep statistics on that, but it is a very small percentage. Yeah. Um, there was a time at Penguin Random House where I worked years ago where it was considered that about 12% of, of the manuscripts that you read might actually see the light of day and might be acquired. Well, that's actually a bigger number that I had in mind. <laughs> I, think, I think that number has dwindled and I oh. think there are, you know, uh, there are a wealth of manuscripts now and it's very, very hard to be published. Um, you know, I think the metrics are difficult and we're looking for books, I think all of us, you know, from your end, your perspective as a bookseller, and from my um, perspective as a publisher, something that's really original, but also that has a really broad audience, you know, and that's a hard thing to find and it's a hard thing to write. And also what most authors don't know, if, especially if they're in a small country such as Croatia and they want to translate their work yes. and they actually find the publisher, uh, which is a miracle <laughs> itself. Uh, how long do you have to wait to get your book published? Usually it's a period of about two years. Yeah, it's, it really sounds horrific. That's why I wanted you to say it aloud. <laughs> Yes, and I know that's surprising to the general public. And two years is actually a kind of short time in publishing For, for you, maybe. <laughs> but for the poor author who's waiting to get their book out, it can feel like an absolute eternity. eternity. Yeah. But during that two years, it's not like nothing is happening, right? Um, building that buzz and awareness, making sure the bookstores are aware of what is, is about to come out, making sure that the books are printed and that they get warehoused and shipped out properly. All of those mechanisms that happen invisibly behind the scene are just as important as the creation of the manuscript itself. Yeah, so it seems that writing is like the, the simplest task uh, of all. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've gone to the other side, side and experienced, you know, life previously as an editor and now as a writer, I can attest to the fact that it is very challenging. And I've always had an, a tremendous amount of respect um, for, for those who choose to write uh, because it's a very solitary, vulnerable and tender experience to write. You have to open yourself in ways that are, that are hard to explain unless you've ever done it or tried to do it yourself. Um, and that, I, th I hope and I think, has made me a better editor. Because while I, of course, I, I understood before that tenderness, that vulnerability that authors experience, now I've felt it. <sighs> and that's a very big difference. Yeah, and that's the, the thing I wanted to talk to you about the most, because you're here as an author, but also uh, an editor of a huge publishing house. And people would think that it was really easy for you, maybe not <laughs> to write, but yeah. to publish your novel. But yes. I've heard that your experience was somewhat different. Yeah, I think some people assume that, well, you have all the connections, it's going to be easy. And in, in fact, 
That is really not the case. Um, for me, it, part of the difficulty was that psychological barrier that I held in my own mind, knowing that the second I released my manuscript to publishers and agents and shared it with people, it's not as though, like many other writers, if I was rejected, if my work was rejected, I could, you know, go into a corner life. like a wounded animal and lick my wounds privately. <laughs> oh no, I would have to continue to work in this profession and see people every day. And there is sort of this feeling like, well, you're an editor, so you can't write, right? No, that's, those two things are different. Who do you think you are? <laughs> um, and so I did have to reckon with that. And um, the way I solved that problem for myself was writing truly for myself. And when, when I say only for myself, I mean when I was writing this book, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my partner, I didn't tell my friends, and the last people on earth I would have told were my colleagues oh, yeah. in the publishing industry. So I just woke up at an absurd hour of the morning at 5 a.m. and I worked on the manuscript just for me. And I told myself, you're gonna write from those very first words of the prologue to the very end, you're going to finish it and you're gonna satisfy one reader yourself. And you're not going to think, I would not allow myself to think about what, who would I send this to or what, who, what would so-and-so think and what, no, I would just quieted all of that and just focused on the work. And if I could give any advice to writers out there, it is the importance of just doing that, of focusing on the work. It is you and the story. And if you can just do that and get rid of all of the noise, what you can do on the page um, can be fireworks. Uh, did you play with the thought of maybe sending your work under a pseudonym? Like Robert Galbraith, for example? <laughs> I did, but as we all know in this industry, the pseudonym is, is it's, everybody finds out who somebody is in the end. With, oh, with not only a couple, Right. <laughs> with only a couple of notable exceptions. Okay. Um, but most of the time, we all find out. And, um, and that just becomes a mechanism for a different kind of mystery to be solved. And, and for me, I didn't want to hide who I am, um, and I wanted the focus to be on my novel and my characters and my work, not on the mystery of who I was. Okay, so uh, what was the point when you decided, okay, this manuscript isn't only for myself now, I have to send it in the world? Well, when I finished writing, you know, it took a, a few weeks to for it, that to settle in, and I, I let it go for a while, reread it, and I'm like, yeah, this is the best that I can do. This is what I know how to do by myself, at least. And I was happy with it. And so at that point, then I could turn to the next step, which was, okay, I'm gonna see if, if there is something to this and, and see if I can get my view of this verified in any way, see if it has any resonance with anyone else in the world, and then became uh, the submission process to agents. And uh, you know, I had various offers of representation, which was incredible to me. You know, I don't think there's any author in the world who publishes or writes a book and thinks, oh, I'm gonna have a huge audience. <laughs> we don't think that. We think our mothers are gonna like it. <laughs> and we hope, we hope we will find an audience, but that is not your expectation. Um, you know, it is really for the audience to decide. It is for readers to decide what they like, not for the author to decide for them. So, uh, you know, when I did actually find agency and publishers very interested in the book, I was floored. I, I, I still pinch myself every day. Uh, who was the first person who read your work? 
Oh, the first person who read all of it was my partner. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. <laughs> but you know, a very easy critic. You know, when you when you look to a family member uh, for their opinion, most of the time they're not going to say, "Oh, this is dreadful." <laughs> Please don't send it. You'll embarrass yourself right. and me in the process. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah, he liked it. Um, I don't know if I got that fact correctly, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but you found an agent and I think that I've heard that you the, the rights uh, for the translation of the book were sold um, faster than your book was published in Canada, or? Yes, yeah. that's true. So okay, most how of is, the... How, how is it possible? Most of the... Well, I think what happened was the English version of the manuscript went out to the various uh, publishing houses around the world who read it in English and felt fairly confident that it would work in their markets. So mm -hmm. yeah. So um, yeah, by the time that the uh, book was published last January, most of those markets were already sold um, around the world and they were already translating. Before your book actually oh, yeah. came out in, in person in absolutely. Canada. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, there are also talks about movie. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I actually, I think that I found an article uh, that was um, from December and your book came out in January. And I was like, oh my God, is this possible? They were <laughs> talking about the movie before the book actually came out. Yes, that's okay. right. So, what can you tell us about the movie? So um, Universal Pictures bought the rights to the book and Florence Pugh, who is of course the Academy Award nominee of Little Women and many other incredible um, films, including Black Widow, is set to star as Molly, my main character. Um, and I'm so excited about that particular combination because I think um, Florence Pugh is a very unusual actor. She makes incredibly unusual choices on the screen. She never does the expected thing. So I think when you have um, a somewhat odd character like Molly, mm -hmm. who maybe struggles a little bit with social cues, and you have an actor like Florence Pugh embodying that character, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens on the screen. You're going to be a producer. How involved can you be in the you're in the book adaptation, in the I, adaptation of your book. Yeah, I definitely have some involvement, um, but you know, if this industry, if the book publishing industry has taught me anything, it's about the limits of what I'm capable of and having trust in other experts in this field. <laughs> I'm an editor. I'm a writer. I know how to do these two jobs. Uh, what I don't know is how to write a screenplay. Um, and I have tremendous respect and a little bit of envy for uh, those who do. And to be invited into that world a bit has been just so tremendously exciting. Um, and it's nice to have other collaborators, right, who know their industry and are experts in it and to be able to learn from them. But, you know, I let them do their job and what they're best at. And I, I can offer um, ideas, thoughts here and there, but they're the experts. What if you really don't like it? Is there a way out? Mm, you know, it depends on a person's contract. Okay. So the, there are specifics in contracts and everyone's is, might be a little bit different. Um, so most times, no, not exactly. And certainly not <laughs> in my case. Um, but, you know, I think writers always have a certain amount of influence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you make a choice about who is going to work on the film, I think many writers like to consider if you share the same goals, right? 
Um, you want to feel like you're handing over a book that is going to be made with some d dignity, some, um, you know, understanding of what that book is about and how you can do that essential translation, because it is a translation of a book to a film. Um, and, you know, one hopes for the best. <laughs> I was always uh, curious about the fact that sometimes when I watch a movie, for example, I'm a huge fan of Harry Potter, as I already mentioned, and I was rejecting uh, the, the premise of watching the movies because I was really afraid of losing the characters I had in mind. And yes. I think that eventually when I watched the movie, it kind of happened. Are you afraid that maybe you will lose your own characters while watching the movie adaptation of your book? No, I think for me, when I gave over my work to publishers, I also gave it over to readers. And something that is tremendously important to me as a writer is to find that balance of participation. So for me, when I read a book, I am only half of the creation. I start it, but I don't finish it. The reader is the person who completes my book. Mm. They complete it through the reading experience and through bringing their imaginative um, ideas uh, to finish the world, to make it exist in their minds, their hearts, their spirits, hopefully their memories too. Um, and so I don't feel like I have complete ownership of it anymore. The second I released that and allowed other people to read it, it's not just mine anymore. It belongs to everybody. And, you know, something that's particular about my book is that it's not set in a named place. You know, The Maid does not happen in New York or uh, London. I never name a city. I, 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 I keep the place very neutral, almost floating and hyper-real. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because I want the reader to use their own personal experience of hotels, of cities, um, of characters they've met or read about and bring all that experience to complete the picture. So one of my favorite things is when a reader will come up to me and say, I know where that hotel is. That <laughs> hotel is in New York City and it's this one. And I say, yes. And then the next reader comes up and says, I know that hotel. That's the Baglioni in, in London. And I say, yes. Any reader can tell me whatever they picture in their minds and to me that is the best compliment because it means they've participated in the journey and they've made it theirs. And that's really, really beautiful notion. And um, you actually um, took your own experience of being at a hotel for writing uh, your novel. Please tell me more about it. So I didn't mean to be a writer. It was actually fairly accidental. I mean, I did know that at some point in my life I, I would probably write for myself, but it's not like I decided that this was the moment. But um, in 2019, I was at the London Book Fair, which is, of course is this big publishing event that happens in London every year where agents and publishers gather and we talk about books and acquisitions. And um, I was staying at a hotel and I left for a business meeting and I came back, uh, you know, mid-morning, an unusual time for a guest to still be in a business hotel. And I opened my door and I completely startled the roommate who was cleaning it. And I remember her sort of jumping back into a shadowy corner. <laughs> and this is the embarrassing part, Sonia. She I'm had, ready for it. Yeah, it's, it's cringeworthy, <laughs> it's horrible. Did, you, did she have it, like your pennies or something like that? It, it, well, it could have been that bad. Thank God it wasn't. Thank God. 
Um, but she had my pants. Oh, okay. My track pants, which were all sweaty and disgusting and, you know, turned inside out because I'd gone for a run that morning and I threw them on my bed. I changed quickly to go to my meeting, <laughs> not thinking about what I was leaving behind. And she's holding them. She's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I look at her and I think to myself, my goodness, it is such an invisible and intimate job to be a roommate. She'd been cleaning my room for days. She knew everything about me. <laughs> she knew what kind of clothes I wore. She knew the cosmetic problems I, uh, products I used. She knew the medications I took. She knew my schedule because I left it right there. And I knew not a thing about oh, her. her. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so it, it, it gave me pause. It's one of those little moments, just a little kernel that sort of lodges in your brain. <laughs> And then a few days later, I was on my way back to Canada. I was on the plane and I heard a voice. Like I really heard a voice um, and it was clean. It was very crisp and precise and polished. Not my voice. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have any paper with me, but I grabbed the napkin under my drink and I just started to write what I was hearing. And it was the prologue to this book. So I didn't actually know it even as I was writing, but that was the moment that I began this debut novel. Uh, to whom or to what do you think that you or the maid owe their success? Why do you think that this novel is so successful in the world? I don't know. That is a question that I've been asking. I've been certainly asking all of my Croatian readers and my publishers <laughs> here and even you, Sonia, why do you think this has hit here? Like, why is it, why has it done well? Um, I think though, uh, what happens with voice driven novels is if a writer is able to translate something deeply personal into something universal, then it will transcend territorial boundaries. And then you, you have a hope that, and a chance of perhaps moving different people from around the world. And I think that Molly as a character is a character that anyone can understand. Uh, my goal was, to have the reader really step into her experience, to live from behind her eyes, to feel her skin, to know what it's like to work in this hotel where she is completely invisible and a, a bit of an awkward character who is constantly dealing with the prejudice of the everyday world around her. And to really um, invest in that and to feel what life is like as her. And I think people have responded to that. And I, I, I wonder if that is why it has resonated the way it has. Yeah, this is when I, when I was Googling the maid and also you, this is the first thing that jumped out of Google that there are a lot of people who are really empathetic towards Molly. How yeah. did you manage to do it? I just, <laughs> I invested in becoming her, you know, um, she's an unusual character who I never wanted labeled. You know, I think if you look at the descriptive copy or anything I've ever said about her, other people will decide what she is and hmm. who she is. But I never will. Okay, then I won't ask, ask you. <laughs> that was, no, you one, of, you that was okay. one of my questions. So, but people, and people ask all the time. I mean, they ask me, well, is she autistic or yeah. is she neurodiverse in some way? And just as I say to you, well, I don't know where this story takes place. It takes place wherever you want it to take place. Something that was really quintessentially important to me was that when the reader enters this book, they don't judge Molly. They don't say, oh, she's not me. Mm. She's other. 
She is something different from myself. This is a novel about what it means to be the same as everyone else and completely different. But I was really worried that if I labeled her in any way, anywhere in the copy or anywhere else, that readers would not identify with her, that they wouldn't make that, that important leap and that investment of faith to step behind her eyes and to experience her life, that they would say, oh, this is, this is somebody I cannot understand, this is somebody who is not like me. Um, and then, of course, the whole point of the book would be lost. This is something you pointed out um, a couple of times during this conversation, how you separated yourself from the book and uh, like gave it into the hands of first the agents and the editors and then the, the people who will read it. Do you think that it's common? Because in my experience, it's really hard uh, to, for an author to distinguish him or herself from the novel. And you have a lot of experience with the authors as well. So uh, is it really hard for an author to do that? Because they, they always kind of... Um, see their novel as them, themselves and also when the critics come and the bad reviews they t they tend take to take it, it really personally. personally yeah i wonder if my publishing experience has prepared me a little bit uh in a different way for that you know because i've watched it for so long um and for me yeah the the book doesn't belong to me the second i've done it hmm. when i'm done the editorial process and it's going to the printer it's not mine anymore and I've always felt that, and I've also felt it as an editor, that the, that, that boundary between this work being the author's work and for an audience has been hugely important to understand. On the other hand, I'm also aware that many of the authors that I've worked with feel like their work is their baby, yeah. their child, you know, their heart, um, an organ, an internal <laughs> organ that is so essential to them. I, as much as I relate to what I write, and I certainly want it to, to feel personal to people, uh, I guess my goal is to touch something that isn't just personal, that is that universal experience of something about being human, and so it can't only be mine by definition. So do you handle bad reviews well? I think I do. I hope I do. Obviously, I think any creator wants to be well-received, and certainly I do. Five stars on Goodreads. Yeah, sure. But, you know, there are many critics who don't respond to this book, and that is the reality. And I guess many times I will even agree with them <laughs> because yeah. I feel like, yeah, you're, you know, like, for instance, some, some readers who really love hardcore mystery, mm -hmm. you know, who really love the whodunit, and their, their goal is to just track those characters and figure out before the, 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 the novel ends who did it. Um, well, that's not my book. If that sort of reader is not the reader that I'm actually grasping, this is a whodunit on the one hand, but it's, a, it's, it's also, you know, layered with, with a, a character experience of growth that to me is the, the, the most important part of the novel. So if I lose that reader, well, my response is, oh, well, I know some writers you're really going to like. And here's a list of <laughs> them, because if you don't like me, the police procedural is something you're really going to enjoy, and here are some authors you 
you might want to read. I can't help it. It's in my DNA as an editor to think that way. <laughs> you know, the, the audience that I receive is the audience I receive, and I'm not writing for everybody. I'm writing for my audience. On the other hand, you had like a lot of famous authors. I was really, um, uh, I was really overwhelmed myself when I read all the names who read your book and uh, told something nice about it. One of them being Stephen King. Yeah, were that you overwhelmed me. as well? I was completely shocked. I was actually in London when that happened, doing some promotion, and I was desperately trying to have a nap. <laughs> I was so jet lagged and so tired, Sinus. So I'm in my hotel room, I'm trying to sleep, and my phone is just buzzing and beeping. It's just going mental. And I, oh, I grab my phone, I open a text message, and one of my friends uh, from Canada writes to me and says, Oh, Steve, uh, Stephen King is tweeting about you. And I write back, Go away, I'm sleeping. <laughs> That's not funny. Because, of course, I don't believe it. She's, you know, she's having me on. This is a joke, right? And I throw my phone back down. I try to go to sleep again, and my phone won't stop. Ugh, I grab my phone again, and I'm, you know, buzzing around. And then I realize, it's oh my God, happening. like everybody I've ever known is trying to contact me to tell me, <laughs> right, that this has gone on. And so it was as much a shock to me as, as it was to them. I don't know Stephen King personally or anything like that. Do you want to know him now? <laughs> I always wanted, I wanted to, know to know him because he's, he's an, not only an incredible creator with that ability to really connect to genre in, in profound and meaningful ways, um, he's also a, a moral individual who takes political stances that are uh, incredibly important. So I, I respect him in all kinds of ways. But, you know, the last person on earth who I would think would find Molly an endearing character was Stephen King, <laughs> right? Like, not, not really the, the reader I would have pictured for, for my novel, but there you go. That's the wonderful thing about readers, is they're unbelievably surprising. Yeah, and sometimes they're Stephen King. <laughs> How much do you think it helped your book? Like not, not only from uh, his perspective, uh, but from all the other authors who also read your book and told, some, told something nice about it. Obviously that sort of support is a wonderful thing to have and we all want it, we hope for it. Um, and I think I've been tremendously lucky and grateful to have the support of some really wonderful writers who responded to my work. And um, I think there's a generosity in this industry amongst writers and publishers. Um, we invest so much because this is not just a job that we do, it is a vocation. And um, it's nice to see uh, writers lending support to other writers. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, how long did it take you from the, the main idea, from the, that, um, that flight when you were writing on a napkin until your work was actually published? So I always um, give two answers to this and they vary dramatically. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it took me five months from the writing that napkin, which became okay. the prologue to The Maid, uh, to the very final line of the book, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. That, that took me five months to write. Okay. However, that seems like a very short time to write a novel. It took me 20 years to learn the craft hmm. in order to write a novel that quickly. And that is because of my authors. And I, that's why I say I owe so much to them. Uh, what is your writing process? Because I know that there are two kinds of authors. Uh, one kind usually writes uh, like um, a draft where with the 
um, chapters and they write what they want to happen in each and every chapter. And yes. there's the other kind, which is like writing whatever comes up to their mind and then they're like taping it all together. Yes. So we always ask the question in North America, are you planners? Or are you pantsers? Oh, yeah. As in flying by the seat of your pants, the expression to mean like, you know, you never plan anything. <laughs> um, and I am definitely a planner. Um, and I believe in planning, although every, every writer is different. Um, but for me, uh, having a few things that I know absolutely will happen um, and also not knowing how I'm going to get to those scenes is the magic combination. Uh, at the beginning of the process of writing this book, I knew that the, the couple of twists that happened at the end, I knew were going to happen. Mm -hmm. How on earth I was going to get to them, I did not know. And there's one scene that happens between Gran and Molly closer to the end of the book that I saw in my head. Like I knew it word for word. I knew it so deeply. I could have written that very soon after I wrote that napkin, but I didn't. I held it. And I would only allow myself to write that scene when I earned the permission to get it out of my head onto the page by figuring out in that very difficult way how I would get through the rest of the novel mm -hmm. to earn permission to write that scene on paper. And I think that is, um, you know, a good advice for a writer to follow, you know. There are some things you will know, there are some things you won't know. You might have that burst of inspiration, I certainly did, that lightning bolt of an idea that will lend you energy to get your words down quickly. Great, do that. But if there is a kernel, a sort of an essential scene that you know must happen and that's later on in the book, don't write it. Don't write it first. You will lose all your energy that way. And you're gonna need that energy to solve some of the dramatic problems that you encounter along, um, along the plot hold on to it and only allow yourself to write that later on, not right away. This is a nice advice. <laughs> um, the question that most authors hate, and you were certainly asked that already, so I know that you won't hate me, is what is happening next? And are you <laughs> yes. writing your next book? Yes. Can you uh, tell us a bit about it? I can. Uh, so I'm working on a few things, uh, but certainly one of the next things that is, is moving along well is another book which relates to Molly. So it, we see the reappearance of Molly oh, in a second book. That's really nice. Yes. And I would say it's a bit of a prequel to this. It um, you know, examines what the life of Molly and her grandmother, her gran, might have looked like and how Molly became the person she is today. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on. I hope that that will be um, published in 2024. We will see. As we've discussed, it takes There's a so while, a doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It takes a while from the germination of the idea to do all those steps to make sure that readers can access the book in a bookstore. So um, I do have a draft. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there and um, I'm very excited to, to move it along. Uh, did you decide to work on that uh, only because of yourself or um, did it resonate with you how much people liked Molly and wanted to read more about her? The second, the, the latter. Second, yeah. yeah, I think, um, you know, I have lots of other ideas for, for novels for sure and I look forward to writing those and sharing those with, with readers. Um, but I'm very well aware, because readers have made me aware, 
that they want more Molly, that they haven't had enough of her yet. And um, so for me, it became a creative problem that was interesting to solve. <laughs> How do I offer readers more and yet um, also offer some fidelity to this character and a novel that um, you know, it must be as good or better or I won't release it. And that's a hard problem to solve and I have been solving it and hopefully if I'm successful then readers will be able to read it. <laughs> yeah, we were uh, talking about it um, on one of your book promotions you had like a couple of days earlier and you said something interesting like the the second book is something like a death of, of an author. It is. It's, it's really hard to write it, especially when the first one was a smashing hit. That's right. Book twos notoriously are the most difficult um, moment in an author's career. And I think this is true in many different places, many different kinds and styles of writers. Um, because, you know, so often your debut comes with a lot of passion. You know, it's something uh, where there's not as much pressure on you. You're able to write more or less alone. Uh, but the next book, is a very different thing entirely and it challenges a writer in every possible way. I have found that um, and I look forward to being through book two and on to another one because I think then after that when you ask writers and no doubt you've you've asked many writers this you know like what's it does it get easier does writing get easier <laughs> no. after book two and so many authors will say no it doesn't get easier right <laughs> Um, it never gets easier, um, but most writers will recognize that that second book is the hardest moment for them. It's the hardest challenge to get through. Yeah, especially if the first one was a hit and That's the second right. one was a flop, and then what, what to do next? What like? to do next on your third book is a big question, for sure. Yeah, something that we haven't pointed out is, and I think that this is also related with the success of this book, is the rise of classic crime novels, mm. which we experienced with Richard Oseman, who mm -hmm. is on the top best-selling list for months now. Uh, do you think that you've gained momentum from that? And did, did you have that in mind? Because you could see from the industry that this is becoming more and more popular. I wrote my novel before he came out, so oh. um, no. <laughs> <laughs> However, I do think that as a publisher, part of my job is to see the reading trends before they yeah. happen. Um, to understand where readers are going to be in two years, because that's, you know, how long it takes to publish a book. And certainly, um, you know, I saw the, the trends changing, I was interested in that, and I am very interested in cross-genre novels, genres that blend two uh, styles together, mm -hmm. and in my case, um, I wanted to write a whodunit that, you know, of course, presents a list of suspects and, you know, the reader is invested in figuring out who murdered so-and-so. But on the other hand, I also wanted to create um, something that the Brits call uplit, uplifting literature, mm -hmm. or feel-good fiction is what the Americans call it. Um, a journey of the spirit, uh, you know, a voice-driven novel that moves a character through a low moment, through a journey of growth, and leaves the reader with a feeling of hope on the other side. And I think when you enter a genre, a classic genre, uh, like mystery, where there are so many people who've done it so well, the question is, as a writer... What can you do that it's new? Right. Well. How do I invest my novel with something different? How do I play with the tropes uh, and the mechanisms that make it not the same as everything else? 
And so I had to answer that question in many ways for myself. You know, when you look at the traditional genre, say like Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes enters a room, he sees all these things wrong, and he can solve the mystery instantly. The reader has no idea what's going on until he shows us all the things we've missed. Mm -hmm. That is a very um, strong convention of the classic mystery. And for me, I ask myself the question, how do I not do that? What am I gonna do differently? Well, Molly, when she enters a room, she's not a very good detective. Mm -hmm. She sees everything, but she misunderstands so many of the clues and the reader doesn't. The reader does capture all the clues. The reader in my novel is the detective, okay? Until they aren't. <laughs> yeah, and it, it certainly feels good when you think that you notice something that the main character didn't. So that's yeah, right. That, that's the that's the great candle. Um, I know that you love books, but do you have time, spare time to read them uh, outside of your work? And if so, what did you read? Lastly, what uh, would you like to recommend to our viewers? Uh, you know, I do read a lot. Of course, I am swamped with manuscripts, so most of the time I'm reading things that the public will be reading in two years from now. <laughs> But I do truly love the moment when I can choose a book myself and open it and crack the spine and read that final version that has been edited, that has been carefully designed. And there's a real magic about that. And I still love to just read a book the way the public does. Um, a book that I greatly love that I think is, is in this genre is The Christie Affair mm -hmm. by Nina de, Mont, uh, de Gramont, which I read recently. And of course, what's fun for me is we, we tackled similar problems in different ways. You know, um, she created a whole novel around the real experience of Agatha Christie. Um, and what happened when she disappeared for 10 days, which became a huge, truthful mystery all around the world. And she tells the, you know, imagined story of what could have happened. And it's just a beautifully written novel. I think something that might be similar with my book is understanding the invisibility of women, mm -hmm. understanding um, this particular disappearance and, and what might have motivated it was just beautifully done. I loved it. And a terrific idea as well. <laughs> terrific idea and well executed. Yeah. Um, from your perspective as a person who is working in a publishing industry, but also an author, what would you uh, like to say to young authors who are aiming to be published, uh, whether in Croatia or in the world? How can they prepare themselves better for this role? I would say the most important thing you can do as a, a young writer is to read. To read voraciously. To not only read for entertainment, but to read and reread, to understand, understand structure and form, to read in an omnivorous way, to read what you're interested in, and read a whole bunch of things that are outside That's of what you're outside. interested yeah. in and really stu study the mechanics of how good writing happens or how writing fails. <laughs> um, and by doing that, you can really find your own voice and your own place where you can make a difference as a writer. Thank you, Nita, for this whole conversation, but this extraordinary message um, at the end. I hope that we'll meet here in this studio again sometime soon, during the summer, creation summer. That sounds wonderful. And it has been such a pleasure to meet you and thank you for having me. Thank you.